Well, if you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? We are going to be in John 12. It's been a few weeks since I was teaching, and so I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to jump back into John's gospel with you this morning. Before we do that, though, why don't you take a moment to sit, to pause, to be quiet. Maybe that's closing your eyes and check in with how you're feeling. And once you've identified what that feeling is, maybe it's a positive emotion or maybe you think it as a negative emotion, just simply say, Jesus, I invite you into this and whatever that emotion is. And once you've done that, I'll give you a second, I'll pray, and then we'll jump into this morning's teaching from John 12. And so Jesus, we do invite you this morning into our lives, into our experience, wherever we are at, however we are feeling. And we invite you, Jesus, to, to change our thinking that would then draw us closer towards you in greater intimacy. And that then we would begin to express our love, adoration, affection for you. So thank you, Jesus. Looking forward to this morning. In your son's name, we pray. Amen. Well, we are in chapter 12 of John's gospel. It's hard to believe. We started John's gospel working through it back in February, and now we are at John chapter 12. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm going through this and when we're going through this through section by section or line by line, I can forget the larger story. And so just a couple of reminders is what John's gospel is. John's gospel is a biography of Jesus written by one of Jesus's closest friends while he was here on this earth. John, one of the disciples, one of Jesus's inner circle of Peter, James, and John. We read in John's gospel that John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so it's not so strange to assume that this was potentially the closest human being that Jesus was to while he was here on this earth, potentially even his best Friend, And so John sets out to write a biography and account of Jesus's life and ministry. We actually find out in John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, the purpose or intention of John in writing his gospel. He writes this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book or in this biography. But then he says this, but these are written, all the things that we've studied so far, and we will study up to the end of the gospel, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what's John's desire is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing in him, that we would have life. And John uses this term life to talk about meaning, satisfaction. He also thinks of it as eternal life, not something that's in the future, but also something that can be begin now. And John records and, and gives account of Jesus's miracles. And he, what he's trying to do is he's pointing to the fact of that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the Christ. And he wants us to understand that. And he, Jesus is the son of God. Now, every good storyteller uses a number of creative uh, techniques while they tell a story to help accentuate and create some comparison or contrast. And so that is really one technique that they use, contrast or comparison. You can think of it in fictional writing. I think specifically of characters and stories. A very well-known story to you, one of my favorite stories as, as a child, I still even read it to this day, is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, written by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. And one of the C.S. Lewis's um, 
most interesting contrast within the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the, is the three siblings. Maybe you're familiar with the story. We have Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And as he is telling you the story, you get particular contrast between Edmund and Lucy as both of them experience Narnia before Peter and Susan, which then leads Peter and Susan to give some consideration and thought towards the contrast between Edmund's character and towards Lucy's character. In The Lord of the Rings, you have the contrast and comparison between two hobbits of of uh, Sam and of Frodo as they are journeying uh, to Mordor. You then have there as well, Soromon versus Gandalf as two wizards. The authors try to create these characters and they build out the characters in such a way to create contrast. Well, in nonfiction, or as we're studying history, oftentimes those that are giving a historical count will choose to point out certain things to help make a certain point that they're trying to make. And, and John's gospel is one of the more unique of the other gospels and that it's very different than the others. He doesn't focus as much on chronolo chronology or chronological accuracy. He's focusing more on really identifying the theology of who Jesus is. And a, and a great example of that is his prologue, verses 1 to 18, where he really breaks down. This is who Jesus is. He's the word. He's the logos. He's the light coming into the darkness to expose the darkness and bring light to the earth. And so we also see here, and I want to point that out because it's an important thing to be aware of that as biblical writers in partnership, as the spirit led them in their writing, that the spirit gives very good knowledge to their God-given abilities and their God-given style, and he leads them in their writing. And so they write down their accounts of history. And so here in John is, is totally in the same way. And so I want to point out as we go through the text this morning of John 12 verses 1 to 19, kind of have two narratives here, and I'll show you some contrast between them, but also some of the contrast that John is building out of characters and of situations within this, which then helps us understand more intentionally the point that he's desiring to make as we work through the text. This is really important as we just think about studying the Bible to keep track of what are the contrasts that the author, in this case, John, as he's writing this biography of Jesus is trying to make to help us understand the point that he's trying to get at. With that, why don't you go with me, John 12, verses 1 to 19. We're going to work through today, but let's start with verse 1 of John 12. We read this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, just a bit of a side note. Verses 1 to 11 is a narrative that is closely aligned with a telling of this story in Matthew and Mark. There is a Luke account of an anointing of Jesus, but most scholars believe that that is a separate account, whereas what most scholars believe that here in John, this is the same account as in Matthew and Mark. Now, Matthew and Mark are going to include details that John doesn't include here, and John is going to include some details that Matthew and Mark don't include. Once again, it's to be seen as we take them together as a complement to one another. They're not contradictions to one another. So what do we read? Well, six days before the Passover, where is Jesus? He's in Bethany. Now, this should be a familiar place. Kind of the, the bell should be going off. This is a familiar place. It's the place that Jesus was in the previous chapter where he raised Lazarus from the dead. It's where Mary and Martha lived. It's also had close proximity. Bethany was two miles away from Jerusalem. In the time, we read that it's six days before the Passover, which means it's likely on the Sabbath, the Saturday evening uh, after sundown. What do we read happens? Well, verse two, they gave a dinner for him there. So they throw an honorary 
dinner for Jesus. Jesus is a celebrated guest to Bethany. So they gave for him a dinner there. We read that Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Now it was not uncommon in those days for several families to work together to put on a dinner for an honorary guest. In this case, Jesus, we read that Martha served. Now that shouldn't surprise us. If you go uh, with me, or if you think of Luke 10, where Martha is the one serving and Mary is the one sitting at Jesus' feet, it totally matches up with their character. Martha here is serving. Lazarus is reclining with Jesus at the table. Tables were not high up the way we have them now. They were actually down on the ground. And so what would happen is that feet were away from the table and they would lean into the table often on their elbow or maybe they'd sit up, but their feet were away from the table. And so here Jesus is reclining at the table as the honorary guest. What happens next? Verse three, Mary, so now we're being uh, introduced to Mary. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Now here, Mary, she's introduced by her act. What does she do? She takes a pint, which is half a liter of pure nard. Now what is nard? Well, nard is an oil that is extracted from the root and spike of a nard plant, which was grown in India. Therefore, this perfume is expensive due to the purity of it, due to its quantity and the origin. And what we read that she does is that she pours it on Jesus' feet and then she uses her hair to wipe Jesus' feet. And the result is that the fragrance fills the room. Now, in the Matthew and Mark account, we read that Mary anoints Jesus' hair. And it's likely that she anoints more than Jesus' feet. She may even have put it on other parts of his body as well. But the reason that John provides the feet as a specific detail is likely as a pre-introduction to what we're going to see in John 13 when Jesus goes and washes the disciples' feet, a contrast that he's trying to draw out here. Nonetheless, Mary here takes this expensive perfume and applies it to Jesus' body. In this case, John is mentioning his feet and wipes it with her hair. Now, I want to just pause for a moment before we go on to the re responses of those that are part of this. And I want to ask you, what is your immediate guttural reaction and response to hearing what Mary has done here? Maybe you can imagine yourself sitting in that room, reclining at that table with Jesus. Maybe go there with me for a moment. And someone suddenly walks in, they bring in this flask of nard, break it, pour it over Jesus, use their hair to then apply or to wipe. What's your response? Some of us are maybe, if you're honest, maybe you're grossed out. Maybe you're intrigued. Maybe you're confused or maybe you're, you're judging her if you're being honest. Second question, what does this action of Mary show us about Mary's opinions or feelings about Jesus? What do you think this shows about Mary's actions or feelings towards Jesus? That's actually going to be sussed out here in the next couple of verses. Let's go back to the text. What are some of the reactions? Verse four, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was to about to betray him said, remember this is written now after these events have happened. So John can go back and say, this is Judas. One of the disciples who would go on to betray Jesus said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So what is Judas' reaction? 
he responds in judgment and says, this should have been sold for 300 denarii. Now a denarii was a single day's laborer, an average daily uh, wage for a worker. So what that means is that this ointment's, how much it costs is a year's worth of wages if you exclude Sabbath days and holy days. A year's worth is what Judas believes that this could have been sold for. And he says, this could have been sold and given to the poor. And he makes this practical suggestion in his mind, which pits his a sensible compassion and concern for the poor against extravagant devotion and adoration that Mary is expressing towards Jesus. He pits the two against each other, sensible concern for the poor and adoration and expression of love and affection and worship of Mary towards Jesus. Now we see here in the next verse, if any of you are like, oh, that kind of makes sense, Judas. <laughs> what Judas's true motive is. Verse six, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself what was put into it. So Judas's judgment of Mary is not based at all on concern for the poor. It's motivated by his own greed. And maybe his thinking is if this were to be sold and the proceeds were to go into the money bag, maybe even I could have some of the wealth. He's motivated by his greed. Now, here we have a contrast that John is pointing out and making for us. And the contrast is the differing value that's placed on Jesus by both Mary and Judas. The contrast and the value placed on Jesus by Mary and Judas. Now, to Mary, I think it's obvious to see, is that Jesus is worth every sacrifice. She's willing, we don't know if her family is wealthy. This could have been an heirloom passed down to her family. Whatever's the case, this could have been sold for an entire year's wage, and she chooses to use it in this moment to honor Jesus, to adore Jesus. By getting on the ground, using her hair, she's expressing a self, a lack of self-worth. She understands that she is not worthy of Jesus' presence, position of humility and adoration and worship. To Mary, Jesus is worth every single sacrifice. And the fact that he is in her home is a gift. And she wants to express that in such a way. Whereas Judas, what's his perspective? Well, Jesus is not worth this sacrifice. Jesus is not worth the sacrifice of this nard. He is taking a posture of stinginess and greed. It reminds me of Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount about money. Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So who's Mary's master? In this case, we see it's Jesus. Who's Judas's master? Money. He's a thief, which this contrast is put here to then point the mirror back at us and to then ask us the question of what is Jesus' value to you? How do you appraise Jesus? Think of the financial means of appraising something. It's worth compared to other things. What is Jesus' value to you? How do you appraise him in your life? What are you willing to give up for him or sacrifice for him? Well, how does Jesus respond? Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. 
part one of Jesus' response, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, there's little evidence that would suggest that Mary understands the progression of what is about to happen of Jesus going to Jerusalem to die and to be buried. And so we're to see her action as a pure action of honor and devotion and love, but it's also kind of a, a signaling of what is to come. And there's another contrast here that maybe you've picked up in that in the middle of a celebratory feast honoring Jesus, Jesus then in the middle of that celebratory feast mentions his burial and therefore his death. Think about that contrast, the celebratory feast honoring Jesus, likely reminiscing about him raising Lazarus from the dead. And here Jesus talks about his burial and therefore his death. Part two, what does Jesus say? For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, Jesus is not here knocking the poor. This is what D.A. Carson writes about this. He says that the poor are always present is not an excuse for stinginess and almsgiving, but a reminder that they would still be around to receive the alms distributed among them long after Jesus himself had been taken away. You will not always have me. Jesus speaks this way as a matter of course, not only because he sees his cross and burial on the near horizon, but also because he knows that he is to receive the same honor that is due the Father. So Jesus is here assuring Mary. He's saying, what you've done here is acceptable. You've blessed me. You've honored me. And this is good. But then he also recognizes that what she's done is opportunistic, that he will not always be physically present in this way. And so she has chosen a good thing. Well, then what happens? Verse nine, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on the account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put to Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So as Jesus is, the news is traveling that Jesus is in Bethany, Jews here, that Jesus is there. He's the one that raised Lazarus from the dead. They not only want to come see Jesus, they also want to come to see Lazarus, the one that has been raised from the dead. Is this in fact true? And they leave and then they're believing in Jesus. And here we read that the chief priests are like, we've got to put Lazarus to dead so people don't keep believing in Jesus, which is another contrast that we have here between the public opposition of the chief priest towards Jesus and those that associate with him. But also we've seen in the story, the private opposition of Judas, as we read there, the one who would betray him. So there's both the private opposition and the public opposition to Jesus that we're already seeing within these first 11 verses. Let's go on to the next section, John 12 verses 12 to 19. This is now a different scene. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So the timing of this is the next day. This is likely the Sunday of Passion Week. The setting is a large crowd that's come to Jerusalem for what purpose? To celebrate the Passover. They've received news that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem from Bethany. Remember that I said it's only about two miles away. And what they do is they there meet him on the road as he approaches. Now, Josephus, a historian, reports that in AD 66 and 70, that there were roughly uh, 2,700,000 Jews in Jerusalem for the Passover. 
Now that would have been a few years, a number of years later after what this is currently, this particular Passover. But we're to understand that Jerusalem is a bustling, busy place with millions of people gathered. It's not just, you know, 10,000, 20,000, quite a number of people. And a section of this crowd, this group of people hear that Jesus is coming, they go out to meet him on the road. Verse 13, what do they do? They took branches of palm trees and they go out to meet him and they cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, there's a whole lot going on here in the background. I want to describe a little bit to us, but what does the crowd do? They hear that Jesus is coming. They go out to meet him. They shout Hosanna, but first, what do they do? They take palm branches. Now, date palms were plentiful in and around Jerusalem. Palms, branches, were also a national symbol for Judea, which may have therefore signaled a nationalist hope for a messianic liberator who was arriving on the scene. So there's also some intention with taking palm branches. They shout Hosanna, which means save or give salvation now. It's, it comes from the Jewish Hallel, which is Psalm 113 to 118, which was sung by the temple choir at festival feasts and at the Passover. If we go to Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, hear these words from Psalm 118. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of Israel. Therefore, these people are connecting. Do you see what they're connecting with the palm branches and the shouting this out that Jesus is this messianic liberator with potentially their nationalistic hopes for Judea to be set free? Verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. In the other gospels, we read that Jesus sends his disciples to get him a donkey and to prepare the Passover meal. This is John's added detail here, verse 14, or his added commentary. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now that's a direct quotation from Zechariah 9. And in Zechariah 9, we read about a king who would come. But the intriguing details, there, there's some context to Zechariah 9. And the king that is described as coming is described as a gentle king riding on a foal of a donkey. Here's what Zechariah 9 verse 9 says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. Now, what's the context have to do with that? Well, three things specific to Zechariah 9 that we should see as pointing, as the prophecy pointing forward. The first thing from the context is that the coming of a gentle king is to be associated with the end of war. That the coming of this king riding on the foal of the donkey is to be associated with the end of war, not the start of a war. Secondly, the coming of a gentle king is to be associated with peace to the nations in which the king's reign would be extended to the end of the earth. But peace to the nations, not solely Judah, Judea, or to the Jews, but to the nations. And thirdly, the coming of a gentle king is associated with the blood of God's covenant that spells release for prisoners. 
The gentle coming king is associated with the blood of God's covenant that spells release for the prisoners. Now, whose blood is going to be spilt in Jerusalem? Jesus. And so here as well, we have the contrast between what the people are shouting over Jesus, as we typically remember on Palm Sunday with palm, palm branches, a nationalist symbol for Judea, expecting that Jesus is coming as a messianic liberator, yet John quotes Zechariah 9 about the coming of a gentle king, which signals peace to the nations, the end of war, blood spilt. And so what's the contrast? Well, the contrast is the crowd shouts and their celebration, but then the fulfilled prophecy and the way that Jesus comes. These, this crowd wants Jesus to come and enter Jerusalem and lead a rebellion, to be a zealot, to free them from their slavery under this Roman rule. And so they're shouting and they're celebrating it here with John identifies is actually, let's think about the king that is prophesied about in Zechariah 9. This is the king. And Jesus is now on this donkey, this foal. He is the one, but he's coming different in different way. And you have ought to change your expectations of him. So that's the first contrast here. The second contrast is the type of the king that Jesus is versus the type of king that the people want him to be. The people want him to be this, this war hero that's coming in riding on a stallion, yet here is Jesus coming in on the back of a donkey, coming as a servant king, a gentle king that would die for his enemies rather than conquering his enemies. How does this section end? section ends with kind of John's commentary on what are the responses to this scene from various groups of people. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. The quotation of Zechariah, Jesus riding on the back of a donkey. They didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, speaking of his death and his resurrection, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So even the disciples in this point, they have a misunderstanding. They have a miscue. They're likely caught up in the celebration as well. Yet after the fact, they can go back and say, that's what it was about. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So there's two crowds described here. There's those that witness Lazarus. They continue to bear witness about Jesus. There's also the crowd in Jerusalem that come out to witness and to experience and to see Jesus. So the two responses, disciples in the crowd, but then we also have another reaction. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Which is their opposition being spelled out. They say, see, we're gaining nothing. They are own, their own political stability is completely at stake. They're losing control. They're losing influence, influence as people are going after Jesus. They then say the world has gone after him. Now this is Johannine or John hyperbole. Because more than likely what they mean is that those from Jerusalem are going after him, not the world. But John is pointing out the reality that the world will go after Jesus. That Jesus' mission was to save the world, not one group of people in particular. And so Jesus did come to save the world and the world is in fact going to come after him. So here as well, within these two stories, within uh, John 12 verses 1 to 19, in the first section, we also have this other contrast of the opposition from the chief priests 
And here at the end of this narrative, we have the opposition from the Pharisees. And what John has been doing as he's been spelling out, he's been writing the biography, biography, he's been putting in these little realities of that there is opposition mounting and growing against Jesus. Rather than introducing it all at once, he spells out for us and helps us understand that this is mounting. The chief priests here, now the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are, are, have a plan now of how they want to go about taking Jesus down. So that narrative is building towards something. But then there's another contrast between these two narratives, these two stories. And that, that is, is the Jesus mention of his death and burial that we saw in the first story in the, in, the, in the situation of an honorary feast, but then also versus Jesus entering Jerusalem being hailed as a king. So Jesus mention of death and burial and then here entering Jerusalem as a king, which again ought to signal alarm bells and don't these concepts seem opposed? I mean, death and burial versus entering as a potential liberator who will release the Jews from oppression? So what is, try, what is John? Remember at the very beginning I said, what's John's intention? He wants us to believe that Jesus is the son of God. So what's John's intention in telling these things and telling us history in this way, putting these two things together? Well, I think a helpful way for us to apply this is going back to a number of weeks ago where we used the Discovery Bible Study questions. And so I want to use that as we begin to apply this text for us this morning. And so the first question provided for us is this. What does this story tell me about God? Or in this case, what does this story tell me about Jesus, the Son of God? Well, firstly, it tells me that Jesus may not be who you and I expect him to be. Jesus is being presented here as a gentle servant king who doesn't use his influence or power to coerce, control, or dominate. And as we're going to follow the story in the weeks to come, we come to know that Jesus enters Jerusalem not to conquer, but to die. We find out here that who is Jesus? Well, he's a king for the world, not just a king for the Jews. And we also come to see, what does the story tell me about Jesus, the Son of God? We come to see that he is worthy of worship in every single sacrifice, financial included. For where your money is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is worth every single sacrifice. Which, which causes us to ask the question, is Jesus worth, again, every sacrifice to me? How do I appraise him? What are the sacrifices that I'm making financially in my life to give to the Lord, to give to Jesus, to me to give to his church, to give to the mission? He's worthy of every financial sacrifice. Second question is, what does this story tell me about people or myself? And at first, it tells us that people respond differently to Jesus. Some people respond in worship. Some people respond in disinterest. Some people make plots to murder him. Some people have misinformed celebration. We can, again, can go back and contrast the, the response to Jesus by Mary and Judas. We can compare the crowd's response to Jesus versus the chief priests and the Pharisees. But as I look at myself, I can also come to see that it's possible for me to be close to Jesus, but not actually value Jesus or love Jesus. I mean, look at Judas. He was one of the disciples. Yet he didn't value Jesus very highly. He was stealing money from the ministry, from the ministry of Jesus. He was a thief. He was also the one that would go on to betray him. So I can appear close to Jesus, but do I actually know and love Jesus? 
third question is, if this is really God's word, what changes would I need to make in my life? For me, as I think about this, well, I would really need to consider who Jesus is versus who I believe him to be currently and who I maybe want him to be, right? Versus who he actually is. I would need to make the decision, am I actually going to make him king in my life? And if I make him king, I would need to begin surrendering and therefore turning my life and all I do over to him and to his desires for my life. And this is, this is so hard. As many of you are aware, we were doing Alpha online and one of the questions that came up in, in the Alpha group that, that Andre and I were leading was, well, if the evidence is so clear around Jesus, around evidence for him and around him being who he says he is, why don't more people submit to him? And we had some discussion around that. And I think one of the most compelling answers was that you can identify that the evidence is compelling for Jesus, but if the evidence is in fact true, it demands that you change the way that you live. And I think many people see Jesus in the evidence form compelling, or they have disinterest towards the evidence, even though it is compelling, because they know that if it is all true, that it would demand sacrifice and a change in their own life. And they don't want to give up their life. They want to be the king of their life. And I want to be the king of my own life. And every single day in my own life, I'm needing to repent of the ways in which I want to be king and I don't want to make Jesus king. And the process of discipleship, becoming more like Jesus, is moving from unbelief to belief in every area of my life, believing that Jesus is king and that he's worth every single sacrifice. And so then I would then submit myself to God's vision for my life. The fourth question is then, well, who am I going to tell? Who am I going to tell? If this is in fact God's word, if this is who God has revealed himself to be, if this is what God tells me about myself, about society, about culture, about people in general, well, who do I want to tell about this? And I think here of, of Mary, a number of months ago, we were studying the Lord's Prayer and I talked about the section of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name or holy is your name. And I talked about the five aspects of praise and adoration that Tim Keller identifies. And the first is, is thinking. We think worship about God. We think about his glory. We think about his grandeur. But then the second step is expressing that, is expressing it maybe through our own worship of praise and adoration, but then also wanting to share with others the same way that as you fall in love with a person or you, you love your family or you love a friend, you want to tell other people about them. And so who do you want to tell as you believe the truth of Jesus in your life that he is this servant king? Who would you want to tell? Or maybe for some of us, we're thinking as something comes up today, maybe an area that we're being convicted, that the Spirit's working in our heart and life, revealing to us the motivations of our heart. Maybe we're finding some alignment with Judas's perspective. And we need to go to fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ and say, I, I, I need to ask, that I need to confess and I want you to hold me accountable. Which leads us here perfectly into communion which we're going to celebrate and take now. This story leads us, and John, as the other gospel writers do, lead us to the week of Jesus' passion, of his death, and then his resurrection. And when Jesus celebrates his Passover with the disciples, he takes the bread and he says, this bread is a symbol of the covenant and it's a symbol of my broken body, which is going to be broken for you. And he says, do and take this in remembrance of me. 
that the bread as we take it is a reminder of the broken body of Jesus on our behalf. And so I want to invite you right now to take that bread. Say, Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice for me, for your broken body for me. I thank you that you're a servant king. That you went to Jerusalem and that you came to die, not to, not to conquer in the way that the world sees conquering, but you died for your enemies so that even your enemies could have life. And Jesus, I am and was an enemy. Yet you died for me. You died for me while I was dead in my trespasses and my sins. And so take the bread now, remembering Jesus' broken body for you. Well, in the same way Jesus took the cup, the wine, and he said, this is a symbol of my shed blood, my blood that will be shed for you. I think of the coming of the gentle king from Zechariah 9 of, of shed blood, they were signaling release for the prisoners. And Jesus shed blood means release for you and for me from our sin, from our enslavement, from eternal death to eternal life. We are free. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem to die, to have his blood shed so that you and I as prisoners to our sin could be released. And so as you take the cup this morning, would you celebrate in this moment the reality that you have been released, that you're no longer a prisoner, that you're free because of Jesus' shed blood for you. You can take it now. If you have never heard this good news of Jesus before, if you've never heard the reality of who Jesus is, this servant king, I want to invite you to explore this more. You can email us at info at churchofthecity.ca. One of our pastors can be in touch with you, or maybe you're friends with somebody on Facebook who has shared this link, or who you know is part of the Church of the City community. I'd encourage you to reach out to them and talk to them about this servant king that they love that they can share with you the difference that he has made in their life. Let's pray. So Jesus, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for the opportunity to focus in here on the way that people honored you. God, sometimes we recognize that the way we honor you is, is misinformed or it's built upon our own expectations. And so I pray that you would bring us into alignment with who you are. And I pray, Jesus, that if there's anyone that's never trusted in you, never had a vision for who you actually are, God, we, maybe they've been put off by the, the way certain people in this world represent you in power and domination and control. Yet here, Jesus, we see you coming into Jerusalem as a servant king prepared to die for us, your enemies. But once you've died for us and we come to believe in you, we are now your friends and we are your brothers and we are your sisters. And so we thank you for that, Jesus. We love you. Amen.